Welcome to episode 375 with my guest, Jordan Harbinger. Uh, I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. Uh, the show's not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I'm not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The uh, website and my Twitter and Instagram handle are uh, MentalPod, so MentalPod.com and then at MentalPod for uh, for both of those things. Um, got some really interesting, uh, first of all, we have a great interview with uh, Jordan Harbinger about uh, work, uh, al- uh, workaholism, um, anxiety, insomnia, self-induced pressure, uh, a lot of really great topics uh, I think a lot of people will relate to. Topics we haven't really uh, dove into, dived, done-dived into too much in this here podcast. Uh, and we have some interesting uh, surveys. I'm going to read a couple uh, before we get to that uh, interview. Um, this is uh, from the Awful Some Moments survey, and this was filled out by a guy who calls himself Hobbs. And he writes, I've been seeing this woman for a couple of weeks, and the other night I slept over at her place for the first time. I've been taking meds for my depression and social anxiety for about two years, and I credit it with helping me get the courage to ask this beautiful woman on a date in the first place. The cruel irony is that the meds have sexual side effects. I hoped against hope that I'd be able to perform, but sadly could not. There was plenty of foreplay, and she was clearly aroused, but when it became clear that there would be no main event... I apologized and told her I was just nervous because she's the most attractive woman I've ever been with. That part was absolutely true, but I wasn't ready to tell her about my mental health condition. She told me it was no big deal, then slipped into her bathrobe and told me she was going to go brush her teeth. Her bathroom was just across the hall, and I could hear what I assumed to be the buzzing of an electric toothbrush. I'm not sure how much time passed, but it felt like an awfully long time for someone to brush their teeth. And then he says, uh, if she ever stays at my place, it will be interesting to see what type of toothbrush she packs. Thank you for that. Uh, This is a happy moment filled out by a woman who calls herself, uh, I didn't jump. She writes, I recently had to get another therapist because my old one moved. I had a hard time adjusting to my new therapist because it's hard opening up and having to retell my story. On our third session, I was actually going to, quote, break up with my therapist, but we ended up actually having a really good session. I left feeling really good about myself, and as I waited to cross the road, I realized I didn't have any thoughts about jumping in front of a moving car. That's when I realized I was actually in a pretty good place. God, that's a low bar, but baby steps, I guess. And it is. It is. The little victories. The little victories. So I, I tell you, there are some days when all I did was, you know, get out of bed, get the mail, not even open the mail, take a shower, feed myself, and that was about it. But I got out of bed. Uh, this is an email that I got from a woman um, 
uh, who wants to be referred to as If Only You Knew. And she writes, Hi, Paul, I really enjoy your show and appreciate the honesty you put forth. Something that struck me recently was a comment regarding the veteran behind the therapist shooting. Uh, for those of you that didn't listen to uh, last week's episode, a woman who I have recorded, but I haven't released the episode yet, was one of the three therapists who was taken hostage by a gunman um, uh, two weeks ago. And um, he killed three therapists and then took his took his life. Uh, what an upbeat way to start the show. Um, and I made some comments uh, that uh, about that event. And I think last week's show or the, sh- or the week before that. So that's what she's referring to. And uh, she writes, I'm paraphrasing here. You said if the country had done more, then maybe he wouldn't have done it. As a veteran, I wholeheartedly agree. I've had multiple suicide attempts since leaving the military, and I'm finally feeling like a, quote, human after therapy. I went through dozens of providers and medications, but everyone was at their wit's end trying to treat me. What drove me crazy was a feeling of worthlessness due to assault I experienced in the military. Nobody addressed it. They were more concerned about calming me down. I attempted to get help through the Department of Veterans Affairs a few years back and was turned away due to my discharge status, despite being in full crisis mode. After nearly a decade and pretty much resigning myself to failure, I found a remarkable group of professionals. What was different is that they listened, which is what I wanted all along. They have shown me that I matter. I wouldn't be here today without these individuals or my spouse. They've done more than the military ever did. Why am I telling you this? Because I believe that the shooter was not, quote, too sick. Too sick. He may have not been receiving the right type of treatment. Now, I don't condone gun violence in any way, but the VA can really fuck with your head, especially if you're caught in an institutional loop with no way out. The VA has made strides recently, and there are therapists that truly care, as the victims, I'm sure, did. However, it isn't right to expect our veterans to fend for themselves, especially after giving so much for their country. The government budget is always top-heavy regarding weapons, but not on care for service members. I really appreciate you taking the time to read this. Um, And I emailed her back and said I asked her permission to to read this uh, on air. and because I think this is such an important topic, um, the number of veterans that take their lives every day, I think it's four a day veterans uh, take their lives. And who knows what would have happened? You know, we'll never know why um, that man did what he did. But I know for sure our government isn't doing all it can do. And... Um, that's a shame. That is a shame that we put more value on um, super wealthy people being able to afford a fifth summer home um, than working class people being able to survive. Um, which brings me to a point that I wanted to make. I read... Um, a quote today from Stephen Hawking. Uh, we were having lunch. <laughs> uh, I was I was hanging on the back of his wheelchair, and actually I was hitching a ride, as because he does he can't turn all the way around, so it's so easy to to skitch a ride behind Steve. <laughs> 
don't email me. Whoever, people that are upset, just turn the podcast off. If you've been offended by that, you're listening to the wrong podcast. Um, so, uh, I'm, I'm sitting having lunch and I read this quote that somebody had written on a board. And it was a, Stephen Hawking said, the enemy of knowledge isn't ignorance. It's the illusion of knowledge. And I thought, my God, that is so fucking true, especially when it comes to emotional intelligence. And one of the worst ripples I see regarding a lack of emotional intelligence or knowledge is this thing that people do, which I've certainly been guilty of, especially a lot more in my past, is redirecting the true source of my anger at targets that don't require me looking at myself or making hard decisions. Directing my anger at convenient targets. Um, it... The world would be such a better place if we all woke up every day and reminded ourselves that there's still something that we can learn. Um, I don't do it enough. You know, my default mode is to, is to be a know-it-all and talk too much. And um, uh, it's something I want to work on. Um, I had a random memory. I want to start sharing the, the, these with you guys uh, occasionally. Sometimes I'll have the, the just... A random memory from childhood or adolescence that's, um, I don't know, just kind of makes me chuckle. But I remember a kid in my second grade class had crutches, and I was so envious. Um, I think he had something with his leg where it needed to be um, kind of pulled up behind him for a couple of months. But I just remember looking at his crutches like they were the greatest toy. It was almost like somebody gave him two, you know, uh, working motorcycles. It just seemed so exotic. And even more than that, it felt like, oh, I could get attention with these. I bet, I bet I would look tough to girls. This isn't like second grade. Oh my God. What a, what a sick little child I was. But that feeling, I don't think, ever really goes away. Um, for those of us, I th think, that are prone to melancholy or feeling lonely, it's having a visible injury. There's something about it that isn't bad because, I mean, it depends on the injury, but there can often be a desirable part of it that is inviting for people to care for us, ask questions about how we're doing, and see us. I think that's what I want. I wanted to be seen, and I wanted comfort. And I think the casts always kind of represented that. I broke my finger in seventh grade playing football, and I couldn't have been happier. I had a splint, and I felt like I was the toughest uh, four-foot-one 40 pound uh, 13 year old I was tiny actually got around on the top of a wedding cake that's how tiny I was and now I get pulled around by Stephen Hawking uh, this is uh, oh I've mentioned before that BetterHelp is uh, a sponsor of this show 
and I got somebody filling out a happy moment that mentioned BetterHelp. So I thought, well, when I do the uh, ad for BetterHelp, let's read this. And this is filled out by a woman who calls herself that dyslectic, that dyslexic that can't say no. And she writes, uh, I hit a new low in my life in December and found this podcast. I cannot thank you enough. And... Uh, for making it and making me realize that I needed to go to therapy. I started BetterHelp.com due to my money restrictions and I have fallen in love with it. I would never have got the motivation to go to see someone, but I do have the willingness to open my computer and video chat once a week. Yesterday, I was having a bad anxiety day day related to my love addiction. I was laying in bed thinking about suicide. I was imagining some man I didn't know Uh, taking his own life with a gun, I realized that this was the first time in my life that when I imagined suicide, it was not doing it to myself. I know this is a baby step in the healing process, but it's nice to see that I'm making progress and beginning to love myself. Thank you, Paul. Thank you for sharing that. I I really, really appreciate that. Um, Yeah. Oh, and um, any comments to make the podcast better? I, uh, I wish you had more people on talking about dealing with the negative uh, stereotypes of STDs, uh, especially herpes. And uh, I just found out I have it, and it's really hard for me to deal with it. We did an episode with, uh, I believe our guest's name was Laura C., I think was her uh, last initial. And we uh, talk about that. We've touched on it in other episodes, but we really go into it in, in that one. And it's a, it's a great episode. Um, but thank you for your, uh, for filling out that survey and, uh, regarding betterhelp.com. Um, if you're interested in checking it out and I highly recommend it, um, it helps me. I do it every week. My counselor's name is Donna and, um, She's she's really helping me. And uh, go to betterhelp.com slash mental. Uh, fill out a questionnaire and then they'll match you up with a betterhelp.com counselor and you can experience a free week of counseling to see if online counseling is right for you and you need to be over 18. And you can also do it um, not only through video. You can do it via email, live text or chat or phone, um, what, whatever works for you and your therapist. And uh you can usually contact them more than just once a week, uh, which is nice because a lot of times um, we don't, you know, the very time we need to talk to our therapist the most isn't a Monday afternoon at three o'clock or, you know, Thursday morning at nine. What if I went on to reel off every single hour of the work week? Would you still listen? I bet a few of you would. Um, and then this is a portion of, uh, this is the last survey I want to read before the um, interview with Jordan. And this is just the first page of it. I'm going to, after the interview with Jordan, I'm going to read the rest of this man's uh, survey. But this is from the survey, uh, Sexual Abuse or Violation of Young Male by Older Female. And he calls himself I, dear, and he's straight and in his 20s. And he writes, I was 16 and pretty shy slash insecure. She was 27 and confident. She was a fan of my band and impressed by our young age. We became pretty close friends and she fell for me. She was very explicit about her feelings towards me. I was slightly hesitant or at least not as eager, but I liked the attention and pleasing someone that told me very clearly and enthusiastic enthusiastically how good I was at it. We had a brief affair that mostly involved oral sex and came close to leading 
uh, to more than that at times. I remember an instance where she couldn't find a condom, or when she did find one, we had run out of time. I think I felt relieved, although I wouldn't have told her that. This went on for some weeks or months until she started sensing my hesitance uh, and drawing back, and she broke it off, telling me she had fallen for my older brother, who was a little over two years older. He was 18 at the time. Uh, again, relief. They've been together since. It's been nine years, and they are now married. I don't know how much, if anything, he knows. The three of us live together, and I'm typing this on her computer. There's a part of me inside that I don't want anyone to know about because it's weird and gross and lame, and people will hate me. It was so hard to be on the planet. Just doom. People-pleasing. Dread. Silent, invisible. Just wailing. Stuck in the grip of the obsession. Derealization. Depersonalization. A suicidal ideation. I was so embarrassed and so full of shame. If I don't get help and get what I need to get... You know, I did some horrible, horrible things. Then I'm not going to be here much longer. God, I wish I could go back and undo them, but I can't. So snipers would shoot in our sides. My father was a notorious pimp in Boston. I can't do this anymore. It was kind of like Scarface. You can change somebody's life just by listening. Through vulnerability, uh, comes healing. It felt like I'd been holding a sword and shield, and I dropped them. And to this day, I have never had a better night's sleep. I started crying in a job interview saying, <laughs> and I was like, LA is hard, man. LA is so hard. <laughs> and I, I didn't get that job. <laughs> 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 I'm here with Jordan Harbinger, uh, who a lot of you probably know from uh, the Art of Charm podcast, which is uh, no longer, you've parted ways. Yeah, I don't host it. I can't say that it's not around, but what I can say is that I okay. don't host the Art of Charm podcast, and I'm not affiliated with it. Okay. Uh, but you got your uh, your own new venture, which we'll talk about later, but we're going to talk about anxiety. You are somebody that uh, I've been on your podcast uh, twice. Thank you for having me oh, on. Yeah. Um, you are somebody who I look at and how much you get done. And I think, why can't I be more like that? I'm so happy you have anxiety. I do, especially recently. Yeah, it's funny you should say that because I, before, when people would say things like, well, I have anxiety. And I, I, Every week on Feedback Friday, I answer listener questions. And people have been writing in for 11 years saying, I have anxiety, or I have social anxiety, or I have crippling anxiety. And in my mind, as a person who never had to deal with that, I thought, well, okay, you get nervous. Okay, you're shy. Or this triggers you and you get nervous and you feel like you're getting a little warm and everyone's looking at you. I'm familiar with that. The type of anxiety that I've been having over this corporate split and doing this new show and starting over again is a completely different type of thing. I used to think anxiety was, oh, I have a test tomorrow and I haven't studied enough. Oh, if I fail, oh, people are going to get mad at me and I'm going to have to retake this class. Oh, it's still going to be so bad. The type of anxiety I'm dealing with now is I'm shaking. I can't sleep. I don't know why I'm panicking and my heart is beating so hard and my Apple Watch says 113 even though I'm in bed. And I'm trying to think about why I'm upset, and nothing is coming to my brain. There is no reason. It's just a physical reaction that will not turn off. That must be agonizing. It's that, torture. Like... And now I, now when someone says I have anxiety, I just think to myself, geez, I really hope it's not what, I'm, what I was, you know, went through last night or last week or whatever, because that is 
nobody deserves that. It's torture. And I'm just, I have a whole new level of compassion and, for that. And, and did this start for you after, after this split, or is this something you have experienced uh, before? No, I've never experienced anything like this. So this okay. is a result of all of the kind of overwhelm from all the work that needs to be done to relaunch the Jordan Harbinger show to finalizing the split with the Art of Charm to replacing income streams that I didn't have to worry about before to worrying about how I'm going to take care of my team because I don't want to fire my team. Mm -hmm. It's not their fault, right? So I'm trying to figure out how to get money to pay them and how much savings I have so I can live off that. And then my wife is stressed and I feel bad about that. So I'm taking on some of that. That this is totally different than, and I took the bar exam. I'm familiar with performance anxiety. I'm mm -hmm. familiar with all kinds of just generalized anxiety. But I'm not. What I was not familiar with was crippling. Wake up at four a.m., eyes wide open, like you're being shelled in Vietnam. Type of weird stuff. I mean, yeah. it scares the crap out of my wife because she'll go, "Are you sleeping?" And I'll go, "No." And I'll have my eyes open and I'll be looking around the room like a psychopath, crazy person. And she's like, oh, my God, you're, you know, this, this, you're scaring me. And I'm thinking, I'm scaring myself. Yeah, I'm scared. Yeah. I'm scared. Um, let's let's uh, go back to talk about where you're from, what childhood was like for you, all that sure. kind of stuff. Sure. I'm from and you're how old? I'm 37. I'll be 38 by the time you get around to editing. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, to be fair, my birthday is like in two weeks. Oh, but okay. Still, uh, you might so, be 41. So I'm 42 by the time you hear this. Uh, I'm 38 years old in a few weeks. And I grew up in Michigan, Detroit area of Michigan, to two just totally middle class parents. My mom was a public school teacher, special ed speech therapist. My, or my dad was an auto worker at Ford. Worked his way up from the assembly line to quality control manager. It wasn't exactly like we're not, we're not talking about like rags to riches or anything. But my dad was the first person to go to college. His family. Mm -hmm. I think my mom was one of the only people in her family to go to college, except for her dad. Nobody else uh, other than them went to school. And but I was always taught hard work ethic, really hard work ethic, because no one's ever going to hand you anything. You always got to get it yourself. And then, of course, the value of reading and education and stuff like that was instilled at an early age, which I thought everyone had. And then I got business partners later on and worked with other people over the last 12 plus years of being in business. And you really do, and hiring people and all that stuff. And you really find that work ethic is diverse. <laughs> um, it's not something that you get just because you grew up in Michigan. It's not something that you got uh, because you're a young person trying to start a business. Some people got it. Some people don't have anything like it. And unfortunately, the people that don't have anything like it at all often don't see that. They don't see that. Yeah. So for me, that was always something that I thought, I can outwork everyone. I can outwork everyone. Uh, and that worked all the way through college. You know, I was kind of smart in middle school, high school, but I was also a hard worker, so I got through there. Then in college, I wasn't smarter than everybody at all, but everybody was getting wasted all the time. So I just went, if I only drink on weekends, I can kill in these classes because they, <laughs> they're curved, you know? Yeah. And then I went to Wall Street 
Uh, sorry, I went to law school first. Right. And where did you go to college? Uh, Michigan, University of Michigan. So funny, I was going to guess that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Standard, not not good. Great school. Enough. Difficult to get into. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Back then it was hard, too. I got waitlisted and then eventually got in, which was like the most relieving thing ever. That was probably the other time where I was really stressed out. Was like I was like, oh, crap, I didn't get into college. What am I going to do? Mm-hmm. And I freaked out for a month or two, and then they were like, ah, oh, you're in. And I was like, ah, I'm fine. <laughs> Why did I worry? Why did I worry? Uh, and then I went to law school also at Michigan mm-hmm. and no, there I was definitely not smarter than I, not even close. I mean, I was like the bottom rung on the levels of intelligence, but a lot of smart people who were there, they kind of gave up trying to compete with other people cause they didn't want to fail. They were afraid to fail. Whereas I had come in with, I'm probably going to fail. So I better outwork everyone. And I just studied for 16 hours a day and made friends with all the smart kids and had them tutor me and all this stuff. Got through there, ended up on Wall Street where everyone was a hard worker and everyone was smarter than me. And I thought, I'm screwed. My competitive advantage is gone. Everyone's smarter than me. Everyone's a hard hard worker. Like, they're going to figure out that I don't belong here. And that's kind of where my adult anxiety, if you will, started to get seeds planted. Because I started to see grown men be like, I'm going to get fired. I'm going to get fired, and then what am I going to do? If I get fired, my girlfriend's going to leave me. And then if I, and then I'm going to have to I'm gonna lose my apartment. I'm going to have to move back in with my parents, but they don't live anywhere near a city. I'm not going to be able to find another job. You know, I, I remember people talking like that on Wall Street in 2007, in 2008 during this crisis. Yeah. But I was a first-year associate, so I was really worried. And uh, sure enough, the market took a downturn. And this podcast, well, the Jordan Harbinger show, formerly or the Art of Charm, which is what I had before, that podcast was what I had started doing in law school. And I went, well, I'll just give this podcasting thing a go and see if I can make anything out of it. So that's how the business started. It wasn't like, I got to figure out how to start a business. It was like, oh, crap, I'm a lawyer and I'm going to get fired because there's no work. <laughs> you know? Dude, you're a survivor. Uh, yeah, yeah, you are I guess a so. Fucking survivor. That seriously, it, it. I, I look at people like you that that have that drive, uh, like you are a Martian. It is. It is something I cannot. I cannot understand what it's, what it's like. Mm-hmm. Um, I wished I possessed it. I my, wherever I live is a crime scene of unfinished projects. Really? Yeah. Okay. And and the shame that goes along with um, bailing on something, often, like you had shared about other people, the fear that I'm going to invest effort and fail. So right. why not fail on my own terms? Yeah, because if you fail and you didn't invest anything, then you can go, well, I didn't even try to learn guitar. You know, so it doesn't mean right. anything that I don't play it. But if you spent six years taking guitar lessons and that's what you have to show for it, but you you don't you're never quite sure if it goes this way or if it goes the other way, right. you know, then you go, wow, I can't do this. This means something about me. Whereas before, all it meant was I don't even give a crap, you know, whatever, bro, I don't care. And a lot of people do that. I think a lot of guys do that too. I, yeah. Guys and gals for sure, but I think a lot of guys have this thing where they're like, if I don't even try, mm-hmm. then. I can always claim there's another reason why I blew it. But the problem is it's subconscious. So -hmm. people who go up on on stage and do comedy and then stop going and doing shows, they just say, man, I don't have time. I got to work on other things. None of these shows are good enough for me. 
my friends keep bailing. I don't want to, you know, what they don't say is, I'm afraid to work on this material because if I do and people are like, this sucks, then I'll feel bad about myself. Your ego, our egos as, as humans are so good at saying, you can't go to open mic night, you have laundry. Versus <laughs> saying, if you go to open <laughs> mic night and you so... try this crap, people don't laugh, you're going to feel bad about it for like a year. That's so true. And how long did you do stand-up? Do you still do Zero it? Zero minutes of my life. You've never done it? No, I've never done it. Oh, because you were speaking honestly as if you were a inside the head of a stand-up comedian. Oh, really? Yeah. How I, you... I just figure that every performer of every kind is probably exactly. like that. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and, and I would imagine that you can apply that to any field that's competitive and scary. Yeah, of course. I, I mean, I remember being an attorney and thinking, "Here, this is so dumb." I can't, like it's fun to tell you this because it's the du- this is the dumbest freaking thing in the world. I remember going, "Man, I have no idea what's going on in this law office." So my strategy is to show up late, like every day, to minimize my time in the office because I'm going to have to stay late. But if I show up late, I won't get picked for projects, and then be like, "Uh, what am I doing?" <laughs> and then. I'd be like hanging out in the city doing stuff and like occasionally you'd get an email like everyone meet in conference room 320 in five minutes and I'd be like, oh, I'm screwed. So I'd have to reply to that email and be like, hey, um, I'm actually at the doctor and then like nothing, I wouldn't hear anything for like an hour and then the person would be like, oh yeah, no problem. I, I just had some assignments to do and I'd be like, thank God, right? I didn't get caught. And then I realized, what am I doing? I'm afraid to get fired so I don't go to work and then I start lying to people about why I'm not there. That's how you get fired. Not showing up and going, gee, I'm a first-year associate and I don't know how to file a draft motion for summary judgment, right? Like, you get fired doing the stupid shit that I was doing. So what wound up happening with uh, with the career? Were you practicing law on Wall Street? I was, yeah. Okay. I was practicing financial law on Wall Street. And it was it was fun, actually. I mean, I had great coworkers. We stopped getting work because of the financial crisis, but we still had to show up and get paid. So there was like this whole kind of not party atmosphere because people who wanted to be career lawyers were like, we're screwed. But all of us first-year associates, we were basically straight out of school, and we were kind of thinking, we're just going to find something else. Yeah. But in the meantime, we're getting paid. There were a couple of people that were like, this is damaging my career t- prospects as an attorney. And I was like, I never wanted to be a lawyer. I just couldn't get a job at Best Buy after I graduated from <laughs> Michigan. And the, the answer, according to everyone else, was more education. And I was like, crap, what gives me the most options? I can't go to med school because I didn't do any of the prerequisites. What's a grad school that gives you a lot of options but requires no prerequisites? And the answer, law school. Yeah. So that's why I went to law school. That's not a good reason to go to graduate programs of any kind. I don't know what to do with my life. Yes. You know, okay, if you don't know what to do with your life, good, sorry, stand-up comedians everywhere. <laughs> Try some stand-up comedy, right? Go uh, work at a r- architectural firm doing administrative work so you can see what the work is like. Don't spend three years and $168,000 getting a law degree and then go, well, this is definitely not <laughs> what I'm interested in. I'm glad I got that scratched off the list. I can't imagine the pain of saying, this is not my cup of tea, in a cap and gown. <laughs> that was basically what happened. There, there, I, I was not at my own. I was at my graduation in the audience because I was like, I'm not going to walk on stage. I don't care about this degree. And I did the same thing in college and high school. I've never gone to my own graduations. I've never been there. So, but I watched my law school graduation. And people were like, what are you doing here? You should be up there. We could get you something. You could have gone up there. Da, da, da. And then I thought... 
this means so little to me that I really don't even feel like I need to be up there. And I remember after first year of law school, which is the hardest year, because it's all like where all the hard classes are, I went, I'm only going to do this law thing for a couple years. And then at the end of the second year, I was like, I got to figure out how to minimize my exposure and just do law for a little while or do some other job that requires a law degree. And then in my third year of law school, I went, this is my last bit of freedom before I do the, all this stuff that I just hate. I just can't. I just don't wow. want to do this. And then when I got my job on Wall Street, I was like, this isn't so bad. The people are nice. I'll get used to it, but I just won't be good at this. And they'll eventually, like I said, they'll eventually figure me out and fire me. And that's called imposter syndrome. Have you ever talked about that on, on your show? We, in the surveys, we've never talked about it officially as a theme for a show or having a therapist talk about it. But I read surveys so frequently where, and especially in master's or PhD programs mm -hmm. where people are saying, I feel like such a total fraud or they're in their first year of their job, their dream job, and they cannot absorb the feeling of I've accomplished something. It's just like something in their soul rejects any idea that they belong. Yeah, it's kind of sad in a way, but really what I've learned through researching imposter syndrome for years is, <clears throat> well, there's a couple things. The first thing is it is what would you even call it? Like endemic to high performers. Mm -hmm. If you ask somebody who sells replacement rubber caps for bicycle tires, and I'm just doing that because I don't like to pick on real professions because then <laughs> someone's like, what? I work at Chipotle, you a-hole, right? <laughs> but if, if, you, if you find somebody who just sells like little replacement things for tires, that person's never like, man, you know, they're going to figure out that I don't belong here and that this isn't for me and I better just lay low. No, it happens to doctors, lawyers, bankers, people who have CPAs, financial managers, engineers, architects. It doesn't typically happen to somebody who's like, oh, yeah, I'm a dog walker, right? Right. And not that there's anything wrong with being a dog walker or selling replacement rubber tire parts. It's that high performers, we always – and I, yeah, I guess I just included myself in that. That sounded a little bit – whatever. I'll let the yes. audience judge me on yes. that one. But what it is is we compare our blooper reel to everyone else's highlight reel. So I'm looking at Paul Gilmar on stage. I'm like, gosh, this guy's so funny. You know, he's probably just wakes up and he's hilarious and everyone loves him and he's got all this cool stuff and he's – look, he's got – freaking golf in his house you know <laughs> i'm never gonna get to that level so i should probably just like hide so that people don't find out that i'm a no talent ass clown you know and so well put and it's so well put it's, it sucks it's, for us right yeah every everybody is comparing their insides to other people's outsides not realizing that everybody else shares so many of the same emotions that you're going through right at this very moment, which yeah. is one of the reasons why I preach about support groups, because three nights a week, mm. I am reminded everybody is just like me. Yeah. The circumstances may vary, but they're all scared. They all think that they've their mistake is killing their life. And, and then we slowly learn, uh, wow. There are other people like me, and we can learn from our mistakes. And, uh, wow, life can actually be enjoyable. Yeah, yeah. But we end up doing what social media does. And the reason that I kind of found this 
How, how do you mean? Oh, this what, is what social media does. Oh, the so, compare and despair? Yeah, compare and despair. So basically, if you look at my social media, I mean, I don't even know what it what I would have posted on there recently. But if I look at someone else's social media, I'll, I'll see a friend and it's like, hanging out, racing with my best friend Craig for his wedding. And it's like these four or five guys that I know and they're at a racetrack that they rented out. And they're riding these like racing Ferraris. Not really my thing, but you know, mm-hmm. people would look at that and go, man, that's awesome. And I remember talking with one of the other guys and he's like, yeah, man, I'm so screwed. This thing happened and my dog is really sick and I'm really distracted by that. And my cousin has this serious, serious stage four cancer and I've got to fly out there. But they don't put that on social media because no. that's not what social media is about. So you end up with this unbalanced view. And this isn't new for you or for your listeners, so I won't beat this dead horse too much. But people, for we kind of intellectually realize social media is not real and people only post good things there. But then when you consume it or when you ask other people about their lives and, and they tell you only the good things, it doesn't really matter that you go, well you know, I know there's other things going on in your life that are negative because your brain is just not getting that input. So right. you start to think, well, I feel like crap because I'm under all this stress and I haven't slept last night. And the last thing I did, I got a bunch of hate mail. And when I went and did stand up comedy, somebody threw a tomato at me. I assume that doesn't happen in real life, but I guess it could. <laughs> and then you're like, but everybody else doesn't have these problems. Even if you go, wait a minute. No, I know other people have these problems. Then you go, I'm going to look and see who does. And you find no evidence of it anywhere. You've got to like go to Barnes and Noble and read a biography about Arnold Schwarzenegger and go back to when he was 17 years old. And you're like, oh, yeah, he did have a hard time once in black and white in 1957. And then you just feel even worse because you're like everybody else's failures were like before World War Two. And I'm the only one experiencing some kind of hardship right now. Again, support groups, man. It It is like getting, for me, a good support group meeting where people are honest and vulnerable is like getting into a jacuzzi. And it's the only thing I have found that has helped with the, the compare and despair. Um, the nice steaming bath of other people's problems. <laughs> that's right. It's uh, it's very humid, other people's uh, uh, fear and uh Regret. Regret yeah. is, is has a very high moisture content. So uh, let me ask you this, because this is always sort of when you go to a group like that. Uh, this sounds awful. Anyway, I slice it, so I'm just going to come out with it. Do, it. Do you feel better about yourself because other people have it worse, or because they have it the same, so you feel camaraderie? Because I almost in my Both. head, because I'm almost. I'll tell you, Jenny and I, my wife, we're watching stuff on TV, and we're like, wow. You know, we're under a lot of stress, but that guy's brother and him are facing life sentences for financial crimes that mm-hmm. relate to a business that wasn't really that bad, but kind of was, and they're losing everything, and then the brother ended up committing suicide, and I was like, oh my god, my life is so easy compared to this poor guy. And even though he was kind of like a scumbag running like a payday loan business or something, right. and you just think, terrible, bad, bad guy, you still have this compassion for him. Yeah. That I would never have had before stress like this. But I also think like, oh, geez, you know, my friend posted on social media, I'm cancer free. And I thought, what am I freaking complaining about? Yeah. I don't have a health scare. My health scare is my shin kind of hurts because I was walking a lot yesterday. 
<laughs> you know? I, I complained to a guy one time, this is, you know, 15 years ago, uh, about my knee, uh, to a guy who had AIDS. Oh, man. Yeah. He's like, uh, oh, how's your knee? I have, you know, X number of months yes, before yeah. something. My sarcoma would like to know uh, if your oh, knee man. still clicks, asshole. Yeah, that's terrible. Uh, uh, but going back to the um, the thing that you were uh, you had just touched on, um, what 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 was the thing that that, that you had touched on um, right before that? Um, the support groups, whether you feel bad about yourself yes, or yes. or better about yourself. I mean, um, the getting a perspective that your problem isn't the worst problem in a world in the world is not the big takeaway for most people from support groups sure. it's kind of a little byproduct of it the big takeaway is comfort and a sense of belonging mm -hmm. and a game plan for how to deal with whatever battle it is that you are that you all share be it addiction difficulty with intimacy etc that's kind of the big the big thing there and then the the, the kind of the peace and the belonging uh that come from that big part of it um bring a resiliency to life's problems that um, almost like as if like if you're in really shitty traffic and you're just your nose is up against the windshield and all you see is that you're stuck it's for me being in a support group is like all of a sudden I'm looking at it less personally from a helicopter okay and and not feeling like this is my life this is just a moment that yeah. I'm going that I'm going through. It's funny you should say that. That was that's what a lot of people have been telling me right now with this whole whole business thing and starting a new show and separating from the Art of Charm, doing the Jordan Harbinger show instead. People are like, "Look, this is the best thing that ever happened to you. You're just at the begin. You're on this launch pad where it's like really hard. You know, this is you're trying to run a marathon, but you've been on the couch for so long, and you're getting up and you're like, I gotta run a mile today. It's gonna be so hard. And I'm like, Yeah, but I'm in it right now. So, guys, friends of mine like Caleb Bacon, who we were just talking about, say things Love like, Caleb. This is a moment. It's just a long one. You know, it's a yes. long one that's gonna last a few months, but. In a year or even in two, you're going to go, thank goodness I got through that. And you're going to wonder why you worried so much, most likely, at the time. And I have a feeling because you are somebody who um, is so aware of details mm. with things and focused on achieving things, I have the feeling you're going to come away from this and say, I needed to go through that to now have this thing that I really appreciate in my life, be it some tool you developed through hardship or a new venture that you would have never gotten into if you had still been doing the, the other thing. Yeah, there's definitely some of that already. First of all, like I'd mentioned before, compassion and understanding for where other people are has actually already made me a better interviewer. Hmm. Um, you know this, but on the Jordan Harbinger show, I interview people and I have to get inside their head and deconstruct what amazing people do say think behave and feel whatever and i always kind of went okay so you get up and you've got this routine and then you've got this and why do you do that now i'm thinking all right i'm interviewing a general or something and i'm thinking what are you feeling when you're responsible for someone's death because and you knew that it was going to happen in mm -hmm. not definitively but you had a 
high percentage chance of losing somebody and then it happens, how do you compartmentalize the personal responsibility so that you can still function in your job? That's not a question I would have asked if I was like, how do you stay awake for 18 hours and stay so fresh? You drink a lot of coffee? Do you exercise? I mean, those are the kinds of questions I was asking before. And I still think, I, I hope I got quality interviews out of it. But now it's more like, wait a minute. I know some real stuff that real people go through because I'm going through this very real experience right now. So there's a gift in that. Yeah. Um, but also, the fact is, I was getting pretty comfortable where I was with the Art of Charm podcast. And now with the Jordan Harbinger show, my producer, my wife, my team, they're like, okay, you've got to rebuild your audience essentially from zero because you can't use some of the old social media and stuff from the Art of Charm. So on the Jordan Arbiter show, you've got to do a better job. And I thought, huh, interesting. Because of course, everyone who does an interview program or any kind of art project, you do your woodworking, you want to do, you want to make them better each mm -hmm. time. But you're kind of, if you're anything like me, you're thinking, okay, I'll do this, and then I'll take a little more care, and then, oh, maybe I'll try this new thing I saw on uh, the Home and Garden channel. Now, though, I'm like, this can't just be 1% better. These interviews have to be 10 to 20 to 50 to 100% better to really hook people and get them to listen for life, just like we had on the other show. Because if I just sort of do the same thing, I'm really squandering this opportunity to focus on how can I make this just next level instead of continuing what I did before. Right. And I would, honestly, I wouldn't have bothered if I were still at the Heart of Charm. Mm -hmm. If I hadn't started the Jordan Arbiter show, I would have been like, this is good enough. The advertisers mm -hmm. like it. The listeners like it. Now, though, it's like, this has to be the best damn interview show on the internet, or it's kind of not worth starting over and doing it again. Isn't that being a little hard on yourself? Isn't that putting a little too much pressure on yourself? Be because... Yes. <laughs> Uh, and welcome to my entire life. That's how I even got into law school in the first place. Yes, if I'm not the best, I need to look at everyone else and feel like I'm miserable and worthless, and I need yes. to live in that for the rest of my life. Yeah, that's yeah. kind of how the yeah the black and, how it works. the black and the black and white thinking. Yeah, pretty much. So I'm just going to throw a th a a thought your way, which which is how can I enjoy? And this sounds so fucking new agey, but yeah. how can I enjoy the journey keeping in mind the fact that i have survived 39 years on this planet 37 years on this planet and i've say, done okay great for 39 <laughs> 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 to, that to me is is the first thought that that, that popped into my mind yeah. because your life is the stuff that's along the way to the goal of having this podcast that's yeah. that's great. How, so how does that um, that's strike you as, as I say that? Oh, no, you're like, 100% right. It's just it's so hard for me right now to wrap my mind around that, and I'll tell you why. No, it's 100% healthier. I'm going to move this so that I mm -hmm. don't make a bunch of noise. It's been – that's been a very hard concept for me to wrap my head around because having the old show – which had like 4 million downloads a month or whatever. And, and maybe this is a guy thing or maybe it's just a Jordan thing, a me thing. I felt like I was at the top of a mountain and I was like, I'm so proud to be here. There's very few shows that have more downloads than this. The influence is great. I love it. I love being able to talk to all these people. And now that I'm sort of 
starting not from scratch because of relationships and not from scratch because of skills, but from scratch with the numbers wise mm-hmm. on the Jordan Harbinger show, I'm just like, okay, nothing counts until I get back to where I was with the old right. show and then I can level up. So looking at less levels of listeners now, even if by some miracle I had like a hundred thousand downloads per episode tomorrow, I would still somehow be disappointed because I'd be like, but I'm not where I was. And then I can't celebrate until I get there. And that's an unhealthy mindset yeah. that has caused me a lot of strife in the last few weeks. And frankly, will continue to cause me a lot of strife in the next year or however long it takes me to build back to where I was if I don't get it under control. And I am aware of that. And I think that it serves me well because it makes me hungry and competitive, but it serves me not well in that it, I could be awake at 4 a.m. on a Sunday night where I could literally can't do anything to improve my show. And I can be thinking, oh, yeah, but in July, I'm, if by these projections, I'll only be here. And I'm, you know, it's like reality check. It's freaking February. Stop worrying about if you're going to hit your goal by summer. What's wrong with you? And the answer is, I feel like I've lost a piece of my identity by separating from this old brand and starting the Jordan Harbinger show. And that really is the root cause of like the anxiety, the root cause of the self-doubt, the root cause of this sort of insane amount of motivation that will, if unchecked, lead to burnout. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes total sense. And I think everybody listening has experienced some degree of that where fear is a motivator, but it can also be a crippler and uh, it crippler in terms of the quality Definitely. of our of, of of us being able to experience um, the good things in our life. So uh, the question would be, how do you go about enjoying your day and trusting in the future, trusting in the fact that you um, are enough? And I know that sounds cliche and new agey, but you uh, where is your identity beyond uh being a successful podcaster yeah so that's been this there's it's almost like my identity and of a successful interviewer successful show host whatever you want to call it and who i and, and just me as a human those things have been pushed together for so long that I'm trying to find a cool analogy here. I'm usually good at this, but I'm drawing a blank right now. It's like there's two giant heavy metal blocks and they're, they've been sitting next to each other or one on top of the other for 11 years or however long, you know, in my brain, the success goes back to the point where when I started to, when I got separated from the art of charm and started the Jordan Harbinger show, I went, wait a minute, you just sort of pulled my face off. You know, where, where is this? These two things are inseparable. And what I've been working at slowly, slowly over the past few weeks and months is finding if there's two giant metal blocks, one on top of the other, I have to find that line where the crack is, where they actually are separated that I forgot about because they've been laying in the same place for a decade. And I've got to get a little emotional crowbar in there Mm -hmm. and pry the one away from the other. And that's, that's the one I got to find the part that says, you're still Jordan. You're still the guy with the interviews, the experience, um, the skills, the relationships. This other body of work that you did is not you. Because I was having so much trouble separating myself from my body of work that I didn't recognize myself without it. And that right. was a really confusing, crappy feeling. Yeah. I, I would imagine, I'm not saying you're a, a, a workaholic, but... Definitely I am. Okay. Yeah, for sure. That 
I think is one of the things that workaholics struggle with is I am my work. Yes. So when my work is great, I'm the king. And when it's not, I'm a peasant. And in reality, yeah. we're somewhere in between. And and yeah. that's, to me, is where the peace is. And again, why, for me, support groups have been so important because I realized I my whole life I have been trying to avoid being lost in the pack. That, to me, meant death. And I thought, I have to separate myself from the pack and be exceptional at what I do. Otherwise, I will not survive. And then I realized that is what's making me lonely right. because I'm not connecting to other people i'm trying to impress people and the for me the safety in life is being vulnerable with safe people and connecting to them and then i'm able to enjoy the little moments along the way but i have to trust that the future is going to be okay and i have to have a sense of self to get to that place yes. so how do we get to that sense of self that's that's the the question just off the top of your head what are qualities that you have that have nothing to do with your business? Yeah, that's a really good question and something that I don't think about very much. Um, I speak different languages. I like learning them. Like I'm taking Chinese and I have been for the past five years or more. You are a workaholic. Um, I can't imagine a more difficult. That's uh, why I picked it. I was like. Seriously? I, yeah, I was like, because I already spoke German, Spanish, and. Uh, Sprechen Sie Deutsch? Yeah. Ah, yeah. Haben Sie uh, uh, well, I, for 15 years ago, oh, I was okay. an exchange student. Yeah, I realized we should probably translate that for the 99. By the way, you've yeah. just reached the limit of my German. Oh, really? Yes. Well, it's not bad. It's not bad. Yeah, I was an exchange student in the 90s, the late 90s, and I ended up getting placed in the former East Germany, which... Wow was not what I had expected. But it was really good because I went there, I didn't speak a word of German, and I was so pissed that I wasn't in West Germany and I was all this like, what I thought was this crappy, former communist, gray East Germany and this like kind of rough town that had been hit pretty hard economically. No one spoke English well. I learned German really well. I went to a German public school. I just looked up words all day. I kicked it, I had fun, I skipped school, hung out with friends. And that was exactly what I was supposed to do. And I remember we had these reunions with all the exchange students. And I'd go to West Germany for like a party with all the other exchange students. These people have been taking German for like five years in their school in Sweden or 10 years in their school in America. And I remember going, your German sucks. (laughs) You know, after me being there for like six months thinking, how do you not know what these words are that I'm saying? And I realized, oh, people speak to you in English. People speak to me in Russian, and then when I don't speak Russian, they go, oh, you're not Russian? You're American? Well, you better learn German, because this is the East, baby. You know, the only wow. people who spoke English were the teacher, English teachers, and I couldn't understand half the crap they were saying. So, languages, something has nothing to do with my work. So, do you think you can get to a place where you can view where you are right now as being in East Germany instead of West Germany? That's a really good point. I think... That's a, that would be great, where it's like, this wasn't my ideal situation, and I whined about getting placed in East Germany, man. I, I had vented to my mom. I called the exchange organization. I was like, this is unacceptable. I'm entitled to something better. And, you know, it was just kind of like, not true. You're not entitled to shit, you know, especially as a kid. You're, oh, sorry, your parents paid 20 grand to put you in an exchange here. 
and you don't like the exact place where you ended up, you little crap, you know? So, yeah, you're right. This is like a non-ideal situation that should have ended up differently for me, but since it didn't, I can either sit at home, cry, whine, vent to my parents, act like a spoiled little brat, like I did in the early 90s, or or the mid-90s, or I can stand up and go, hmm, all right, three, four months into my stint in East Germany, I gave up on crying about it and wishing things were different and went, I got to make friends and learn German or this rest of this year is going to be just crap. And that was a changing point for me because I decided I'm going to start applying what I learned. I'm going to start doing this. And I remember this exact feeling or exact exact decision-making tree or process because uh, one of the things they told us to do is write keep a journal as an exchange Mm -hmm. student. So I kept a journal and I remember writing in it, I got to learn German and I got to make friends and I got to figure out a plan. And then I started writing the words in the journal in German and sentences in German that I knew from that point on. And the end of the journal is entirely in German. Wow. So not, not like, gee, I'm such a good writer of German. The sentences are terrible. You have a, right. If a German re- reads it, it's good. they're like, this, this is like a <laughs> mentally disabled first grader or something, right, <laughs> writing this. But the point was is I just – you're right. I, I, I never thought about this. But I basically embraced the fact that this was – what I'd considered a shisa sandwich at the time mm-hmm. and turned out to be the best thing that ever happened because I came out of East Germany with some accolade like exchange student of the year because I had the best German that anyone had had and I ended up going and doing all these cool volunteer opportunities. And since I learned German, I got then the ability to travel all over Germany and give talks about being an exchange student for this organization. So they were paying for this and I was traveling around with like a bunch of my friends and th- this could be that. This could be me ending up in East Germany where I go, wah, this is a bunch of BS. But then I come out of it and go, this is exactly what needed to happen. Was I ever going to start the Jordan Harbinger show or was I just going to sort of live in the shadow of this brand that I'd created for 11 years and then eventually just get sick of it or bored of it or find that the brand was so limiting that I just gave up? Who knows? But now I don't have a choice. That particular decision tree has been cut Mm-hmm. And now my choice is either give up and lay on my parents' couch or start from scratch and get to freaking work, you know? Well, what kind of couch are we talking about? It's really, it's one of those sticky leather ones where oh, you wake okay. up and your ears sweaty and it okay. hurts when yeah. you get up. No, yeah. I was thinking if, like, if it's like a velvet sectional. This is nice. Uh, this one, this couch is Yeah, it's bad. about a year old. Uh, no, it's three months old. How, lo- how often do you sleep on this thing? Uh, I've yet to sleep uh, on it. Yeah. You should consider I'm, giving it a shot. I should. It's a little yeah. narrow. You might yeah. roll off. That's the only problem. That's true. That's true. Um, so you speak multiple languages. Um, uh, and let's talk about interpersonal uh, uh, qualities that, that you possess, things that mm. bring meaning in your life. Um, Can you and, give me an and, example? And, and, and <laughs> your, your, uh, your wife, Jen, is over there on her laptop. If she... Why, Jen, why don't you come over and take loves, my mic for a second? She loves this Because stuff. I'm sure you have some perspectives on Jordan that he doesn't because he's so mean to himself all the time. That's right. Jen loves when she gets suddenly forced to... Yeah, I'm not very good on the mic, so... Mm-hmm. <laughs> so what was the question? some things that Jordan possesses, some interpersonal things that he brings. Outside of his career, what are qualities that he possesses that are 
a reflection of who he is as a person. She's looking at me like I'm going to know the answer and be able to tell her telepathically when I don't even know the answer. Nor do I have telepathic powers. Well, Jordan's a really... Um, he's really generous. And I don't know if you, you realize this yourself or you're you're not doing this on purpose, but you're... Over the past few years, I mean, you've had a lot of success in the podcast and you've helped a lot of people over those years without asking for anything in return. And and you feel good about helping other people. And so I feel like you're you're really you spend a lot of time on the phone um when people ask you for advice. Um so I, your generosity is definitely something that I think is a really good quality. Um, <laughs> um, I don't know what. That's it, generosity. The end. No, I mean, I, that, that's what I like. You've spent a lot of time doing. I mean, because podcasting is your passion. That's all you've. Whenever people are asking you what your hobby is you you kind of blank out you don't really have any hobbies this is just what you love to do i can't think of anything else that you like to do except doing this but let's, let's what about workaholic did you say that <laughs> earlier was that i thought i heard that earlier well every hobby you know, is turned into a job um no generosity uh, you know to me under that umbrella is compassion kindness um, enjoying being helpful, uh, those are some of the most important qualities a human being can can have. And when was the last time you thought to yourself, um, I'm not a failure, I'm actually a generous person who uh, shows up when people are in need? When was the last time you said that to yourself? Uh, I don't know if that's ever even come across my... Consciousness, really. You know, I've never gone, well, you know, at least I'm a nice person. I never really have said anything like that. Am I, by the way, is my audio coming through? Yes. Yeah. This, this only shows one, oh, okay. uh, one track. Because I was like, oh, shit. Yeah. Okay, just making sure. Yeah. Because I can't, I can't bring this kind of A-game emotional <laughs> outpouring on cue, Paul. I wanted to make damn sure... But this I'm is the same way with with audio. I've I've fucked up shows before where I'm like, oh, the wrong mic was on. Did yeah. you ever try to redo it and it just sucks? Yeah. Like say that funny thing again, then I'll yes. laugh again, and yeah. then I'll make that counter yeah. joke, and then you got to laugh again. Yeah. No, it doesn't work. So um, so yeah, going yeah. back to the you've you've never really thought that um, about yourself, and I think it's important to distinguish between. Um, Having self-compassion and self-reflecting uh, on yourself in a healthy way and feeling like you're this grandiose person that doesn't need to, you know, self-better. Uh, boy, does that a weird choice of words. Yeah, that, that, that doesn't need to uh, uh, better uh, oneself. Oh, I mean, I definitely tr always try to better myself, but usually it has to do with some kind of challenge like learn chinese oh you're still good at languages learn chinese then buddy fine i will 
yeah. for five and a half years. And then I met a Chinese girl and married her. So I was like, see, it was all worth it. Utilitarian. I got a lot of white guy points for coming in knowing Chinese. That was like, and people were like, oh, did you learn it because of your wife? And I was like, nope. I learned it before we even met. Uh, sort of. And but yeah, no, I I do a lot of things to try to sort of better myself and work on myself, but I don't do it because Jordan deserves it. I do it because I'm like, hmm, I got to shore up this weak point. Yeah. Or if I'm if I'm going to have high self-esteem in this area, I better be good at this. Mm-hmm. I better be good at that. I I literally took Chinese because I thought, can I say that I'm good at languages when all I know is German? English, mediocre Spanish and Serbian. Can I do that? Or, or is it like, you gotta know an Asian language that's really hard. And I just went, screw it. And I wanted to learn Korean because I had gone to North Korea on this crazy tour. And then I realized if I'm going to learn an Asian language, it's not going to be the one that has 35 million speakers. I want to learn the one that has 1.3 billion because they're, if they're equally hard, I want more utility out of this than I'm getting here. So that was that. So as you as you hear yourself saying all these things about the way you view yourself in the world, I would imagine you're hearing yourself be really hard on yourself. A little bit, yeah. Although a little it doesn't bit? sound unreasonable. A that's little thing. bit? Yeah, that's the thing is I, I do see it now, but I'm like, is it? hard on yourself to say I'm going to give myself this challenge no maybe not but I think you're right it is hard on yourself if you say I don't have any right to say that I'm good at something unless I master the hardest part of it like oh you only know four languages and they're all they're all written with Roman or Latin script and Roman numbers that's too easy (laughs) don't give yourself any credit for that learn Mandarin Chinese then maybe you can show up and talk about how you're a language guy. Till then, shut your face, Jordan. You know, that's kind of how that was happening in my head. Right. Maybe not quite that, but yeah, there was definitely something there. And I recently lost a bunch of weight, um, like 30 pounds or something. I Part of it's the stress diet. The other part of it is just walking around outside a lot, talking mm-hmm. on the phone. And people are like, wow, you you look good, man. You look good. And I'm thinking... No, I've got to go to the gym and get more muscular because maybe I've lost a bunch of weight, but a lot of that was muscle, and it's not like I look great. You know, I don't look mm-hmm. jacked or anything, so, yeah, it doesn't count. And I really, yeah, I kind of, like, don't let myself enjoy small successes because I'm constantly shooting for big ones. Mm-hmm. The problem is the big ones can either prove elusive. They can be they can be uh, one month away and then turn out to be a decade away, and then what are you going to do? Did I share, when I was on your podcast, did I share the uh, story about Steve Case at Davos, the AOL guy? I'll share it again. Steve Case was the founder of AOL. And in the 90s, there was few people as successful on paper as as this guy. And he shared in an interview one time that he would go to this meeting of the bigwigs, Davos, Switzerland, annually. It's all the most powerful people in the world. And somebody was interviewing him, and he was uh, standing at at the bar, and he said to this person, I come here every year, and no matter what room I'm in, I feel like something more important is going on in another room. I don't know why I come. 
Huh. And I thought, it never fucking ends. Yeah. Until we decide we're enough, we're okay as we are, and that does not mean that we don't have goals or aspirations. It means, to me, we're not defining ourselves and until and we hit that point. We're, we're just trying to be present and be authentic, whatever that looks like. Right, yeah, exactly. I think, and also I think the workahol sort of overachiever stuff is a way of hiding because it, if you're working on Mandarin Chinese and getting a top 50 iTunes podcast and growing a business, you don't have to worry about little things that might be nagging at you. Oh, mm-hmm. you're a little overweight? Fine. Look at, look at your business though. You're killing it. Uh, or, oh, you know, you could probably be a more patient person. Yeah, but it's somebody who's going to run a $10 million company. Is that person yeah. patient? No, and so we turn it into virtues, mm-hmm. and I don't know if that's an American thing, but I think it kind of is, where, and I certainly got that from my dad, where he was like a really hard worker, really good investor, saver, and generous guy too, but was cranky a lot, because he mm-hmm. didn't handle being tired from work very well, and he had crazy long days, and he would work on the weekend, everything, and so it somewhere in me is this permission pattern that says, you can kind of be a dick as long as you're like really busting your ass. Mm. But that's not really a true that's not really an agreement that everyone will have with you. It's an agreement you can have with yourself right. that you're allowed to be a little overweight or that you're allowed to be kind of a dick. But the people who don't get into that agreement with you, you can wake up one day and go, "Why don't I why don't those people hang out with us anymore?" And it's like, "Well, maybe they didn't agree that it's okay for you to show up late to everything because work. Maybe they don't agree." that you can be kind of a jerk to everybody because you're tired from work. Maybe they're not enrolled in that. And then you go, oh, crap. I have to live in other people's worlds, too. I can't just live in my own unless I'm only going to do work, which is also unfulfilling and can be ripped away from you, as we are seeing right now. And it's like, oh, crap. Did my identity change? No, but I was struggling with that for the past few weeks. Like my identity is sh- it's fragmented and shifted, but really I just had to pry my identity and sense of self away from the body of work or the identity of the title of the show or whatever mm-hmm. it was. And that was a tough lesson for me that I'm still learning. Cause I can imagine people who've had real downfalls when I look at comedians and stuff like that, uh, or some of this me too stuff, I'm not excusing any of these people's behavior, but I can imagine what they feel when they're like an A-list celebrity mm-hmm. and something comes out from 20 years ago that they had forgotten about, that they did, that was wrong. And I'm not, again, I'm not saying anything right. about that. And then they go, wait, what are you talking about? You're going to reshoot the movie parts that I was in. What are you talking about? You're taking that deal off the table. What are you talking about? You're going to cancel season 348 of House of Cards. Like I, no, I've, I'm in my prime. What the hell are you talking about? And so I, I have real compassion for anybody in a situation like that, regardless of whether or not they deserve it. That's a whole different question because I now understand, holy crap, what they must be going through, that cannot be easy. Because if you're Kevin Spacey and you've had this crazy downfall, you can't get away from yourself. Yeah. You can't. You can't. It's there. And everyone else knows it, too. That's got to make it way worse. How do you make peace with your mistakes, to me, is one of the biggest challenges in life. And it's something that that I struggle with. And and I find that it's one of the 
greatest roads to self-compassion because we we tend to think that we are excusing our behavior if we're compassionate to ourselves in the wake of a mistake. But the way we handle a mistake, to me, is where we can show character. Do we apologize? Do we try to learn from it? Um, you know, do we make a conscious note to ourselves? Not only am I not going to, you know, do something that hurts somebody again, but uh, what can I do to benefit that person that that I wronged or harmed or offended? Um, and that, to me, is is the greatest uh, apology and life builder as opposed to shaming ourselves and just being stuck in self-obsession and self-hatred. Yeah, I've, I've definitely experienced a, a fair share of that as well over the past couple of weeks and months. And one thing that I found myself getting into was when you start looking at how can I repair mistakes or make things up to other people, it's a little bit of a dangerous spiral, maybe a downward spiral for somebody who's new to this and isn't doing it in a controlled environment, if you will. Mm -hmm. Because I remember thinking about things I'd done that were maybe not that nice years and years and years and years ago. And I'm like, wait, is my brain just looking for shitty things I've done to other people since age 11 that I can remember and mm -hmm. bringing them up right now? for, for self-torture purposes. And I noticed that when I found myself looking around on Facebook for some kid that I think I made fun of when we were in Boy Scouts along with the rest of the troop, and I sent him a message because I did find him, and I sent him a message and I was like, Don't I'm not going to apologize for this because it's going to be too weird. But I just wrote him in to see how he was doing. And he's like, great, man. Yeah, it's good to hear from you. It's been a long time. And we just started chatting and I was like, this guy either doesn't remember or doesn't even care, right? Yeah. And... And I thought, why am I doing this to myself? I'm on Facebook at 4 a.m. trying to find some guy who probably doesn't even remember any of this. Mm -hmm. My brain is just trying to torture me. Yeah. And mm -hmm. so you do have to be a little bit careful with it. Uh, but also, you're right. There's there's nothing better than reconnecting or trying to figure out a way to make it better rather than just sort of what, self, what is it, self-flagellation? Yeah, which is a form of self-obsession, mm -hmm. I think. Uh, I've never seen somebody shame themselves into becoming a better person. No, uh, it doesn't sound like a good plan. I hadn't thought about it, but yeah, you're right. Yeah, self-reflection, absolutely. Game plan to become a better person and you know, live a more principled life, absolutely. Those those are awesome, but yeah, um just sitting and calling ourselves a piece of shit is uh it 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 didn't work out for me for the first 45 years of uh, mm. of my life and when I decided um, to have compassion for myself, uh, for the mistakes I've made. Um, it, it was a turning point, not no longer shaming myself for taking naps. All these little things along the way have helped me. And by no means am I like, you know, this person that has got it all figured you out. Still take naps. I still take naps. Shame on I you. I took one <laughs> right before you got here and it, um, it's been a, it's been a, a a life changer for me, and it doesn't mean that there aren't um, there aren't goals. Yet I also still envy somebody that has your work ethic. So what I'm saying is, let's you and I have a baby, and that baby mm -hmm. will be the the perfect blend. Or will it have all of our worst qualities, and you and I will be oh like, oh, God. what were we thinking? I need to go back to the drawing table. Yeah. yeah. 
A drawing table would be a very weird thing to design a person, though. Yeah, it you would know. be. It's a little yeah. two-dimensional. All, all the architectural angles. Yeah. Now you need a... Man, I don't even... What, are the, what were those tools called? The compass, but you had that slide rule, the T-square yeah. thing or yeah. whatever it was. Remember learning that in school and the teacher's like, if you ever want to design anything, you're going to need this. I remember staring out the window when someone was talking about it. Yeah. But I don't, I don't remember. But you're a woodworker. That had to be, but that wasn't interesting to you back then? I, I don't really write stuff down when I, when I woodwork. It's very kind of unconventional. I'll, I'll, well, I take that back. I'll do a sketch, but I don't, uh, do it in a precise way. It'll, okay. It, it's very, it's very, very primitive, and a lot of it is just kind of in it's all up my here. head. Yeah, it's all up top. Yeah, which is a bad place for anything to be. Uh, <laughs> is is there anything else that that you'd like to uh, share or talk about before we? Uh, you know what? There was one question I want to have. Sure. Uh, remember what it was that you were going to say? Do Nothing. You... I think what I was going to say is nope. Oh, <laughs> so uh, go ahead. Do you? Was there praise or? Um, positive attention given to you as a child for things beyond accomplishing things? Yes, but I can't remember what it was, but I don't remember my parents being, I don't remember them withholding praise or anything like that. And I remember my dad saying things like, you know, mom and dad are really proud of you, but it was always at times when I achieved something. So I was always kind of like, whatever, thanks. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. It's a good question. Yes, but if if anything, I remember it being kind of unremarkable, but that doesn't mean it didn't make a really deep impression. It just means the way that I handled it was like, whatever. Right. But it doesn't mean that it wasn't like in my brain going, this is how you get loved. Right. You know, I don't know. That might right. have actually still gotten through there. Well, you know, I, I'm not a parent, so I don't know what it's like, but um, I would imagine when a parent says to a kid – Aside from any accomplishment or what they look like physically, they say, you know, you're a, you're a good person and I'm, I'm proud of, of who you are. Um, I would imagine that that hits a kid in a way that getting an A and getting an attaboy from them, um, might not. And I'm not saying there shouldn't be attaboys when somebody gets an A, but, um, I guess unconditional love with boundaries and guidance, uh, would, would seem like an important thing for a kid, but I can't imagine what it's like to, to be a parent. Yeah. I'm a little nervous about it myself because one, I worry about my cat if I can't find it for a couple of hours, let alone like sending my only daughter off to school or with like some guy i i'm just that i don't know how parents survive yeah the worry and, and do you have uh kids yet not yet okay no but i mean we we I, we're having trouble even imagining how much worry is going to be done we lost like i said we lost our cat once for like two or three hours we were just like the holidays are going to be ruined. And it's some <laughs> some cat abuser probably got him because he's friendly. And then our neighbor was like, "Hey, I have your cat." Um, yeah. There, there to me is another quality: is that you love animals. There That's, you go. That says a lot about somebody. Somebody that loves I about love animals. animals. You know, when I when I meet somebody that doesn't like dogs, I 
it's honestly a deal breaker for or a, a deep relationship with it's somebody. It's weird too because I get it. If someone has a traumatizing experience with a dog, it's like okay, that's different. But if you just are like they're gross, I'm just like yes. no, you're gross. <laughs> what a great moment to end on. Yeah, <laughs> Jordan. Uh, Thank you so much. I'm glad we finally got to meet in person. Uh, your podcast is called uh, The Jordan Harbinger Show, and uh, people can find it on any of their uh, podcast players. What's the website? JordanHarbinger.com slash podcast. Who would have guessed? I, you know, I'm really creative with the naming. The Jordan Harbinger Show, JordanHarbinger.com, Jordan at JordanHarbinger.com. Yeah. Um, and if you used to listen to The Art of Charm or you didn't used to listen to it, then you will love The Jordan Harbinger Show. Yes. Uh, I hate to break the news to you, but I just took away the uh, jordanharbinger.com uh, email uh, URL. You just took it, away from it? I just I just took it from you, so now you're going to have another challenge to Crap. deal with. Yeah. Thanks, buddy. Paul at jordanharbinger.com. <laughs> many, many thanks to uh, Jordan. Man, he makes me laugh. Uh, got an update from him. We recorded that about a month ago, and his new uh, podcast is, is going well, and his anxiety is also down because he went to a doctor and he got prescribed some meds and just knowing that he has them, he says, is helping him sleep at night. And so he's actually not even taking them, but his anxiety is lower because he he knows help is right there on the uh, the nightstand. I'm assuming that's where he keeps it. But many, many thanks to uh, to him. Uh, before I take it out with some surveys, I want to remind you guys, there's a couple different ways to support the show. Uh, if you're so inclined, you can support us financially by making a one-time donation through PayPal or my favorite, become a monthly donor through Patreon. And that way I can give you a little, little uh, free things here and there. Um, sometimes I'll post a little video or pictures from personal stuff in my life, um, sometimes bonus content. Um, but mostly it's you just giving from the kindness of your heart because this podcast would not exist without monthly donors. Advertising is just not consistent enough to keep it afloat. And, uh, advertising, if you've noticed, if you've been listening lately, um, has been pretty thin and, um, yeah, I need your help. So, um, the links to either of those are on our website and, uh, I believe it's under the donate button. You can also help us by buying a t-shirt or a coffee mug. Um, you can help us non-financially by spreading the word through social media. Um, if you like, uh, go to Facebook and like the uh, Mental Pod Facebook page. Then it shows up in your feed when I put stuff out there, and that helps it. If you follow me on Twitter and Instagram, stuff like that. So uh, those are all ways you can do it, and do it by word of mouth. Or just sit around the house and go fuck yourself. How's that grab you? What do you think of that? Wear a nice bonnet. Put a bonnet on and go fuck yourself like they did in the 1800s. This is uh, the continuation of that survey I read right before the opening theme music to their show filled out by uh, a guy who calls himself I Dear. Uh, he's straight in his 20s. Uh, he's the guy. He was 16. She was 27. She then married his... Uh, his older brother. Um, to the question, if something happened, did you ever tell anyone? He wrote, my family knew that we were friends and that we were spending a lot of time together, but I doubt they ever suspected the nature of the relationship. She talked about some of her somewhat younger friends, uh, to some of her somewhat younger friends about 
quote, us, some of whom kindly asked me how I felt about all of it. I seem to recall them being very supportive, but I wasn't very confident about my feelings either way. One of my exes somehow found out about this and pushed me pretty hard to disclose to her the extent of the relationship, to, I assume he means to his then, uh, uh, to his, what was it, his fiance, ex-girlfriend, one of my exes. Uh, the extent of the relationship and eventually confronted her about it when drunk, only to get shut down and told none of it ever happened. Uh, my girlfriend was more enraged or revolted with my sister-in-law than supportive or compassionate towards me, and her way of dealing with it was never on my terms. I'm so glad that you said that because that is, it is so easy for us to make things about us without ever realizing that we're losing focus on what the most important thing is. You know, for instance, the Me Too campaign, which is a fantastic and much-needed thing. I wish that we would spend less time gloating over the downfall of people and more time supporting the people who've been hurt, wondering what can we do to help their recovery, and asking what can we do as a society to uh, help understand the what creates predatory behavior like this so that we can see if there are any steps to fight it? I don't know what the word would be, um, but I'm glad you said that because that does, you know, as somebody who has survived something uh, sexual, trauma, I can tell you compassion is like a glass of clear water to somebody who is starving in the desert. Because for most of us, we feel shame, we don't trust, we shut down, and we bottle up all the sadness, all the anger, etc. And compassion is just like a key sometimes that can just unlock that door. Seeing somebody else get angry, it's nice to know that somebody's on your side, but to me, uh, like like he said here, um, compassion is just so, uh, it's healing. It's really healing. Uh, reflecting on this again after a long time and talking about it in a safe, neutral environment has shed some light on the power imbalance caused by the age gap and my lack of confidence or experience and helped me identify some of the issues I've taken away from this. I've started feeling triggered and made uncomfortable by seeing people that seem to come on too strong to less confident guys like myself, um, either on TV or in real life. I've recently started seeing someone that has thus far been pretty upfront about her feelings, but has given me space to be honest about my own. Nevertheless, I've been kind of nervous about giving into uh, non-existent pressure, afraid to hurt feelings or lead her on only to let her down, and doubtful of my ability to listen to myself and be honest about how I feel to myself and people around me. Uh, remembering what happened, what feelings come up. Uh, we've been close friends pretty much throughout the, this whole time, and this hadn't really been on my mind for a long time until at their wedding, where I had to listen to someone recount the story of how they met and how we, how he, uh, assume he's talking about his brother, quote, played hard to get and took a lot of work. It sounds funny and romantic to most, at least when you leave out the part where she went for the younger brother first, but that didn't work out. 
both with their edited history and my ex's confrontations. I didn't particularly want all the information to be shared with everyone or anyone, but I felt silenced and frustrated that it wasn't up to me to decide. That's another really important thing is taking ownership of our story is such an empowering thing. Um, but there's a time and a, and a, and a place for it that is, I think, up to each person, um, how and when or if ever they choose to disclose it. Um, Do you feel any damage was done? This has definitely had an effect on my subsequent relationships and my relationships with my brothers and her, but they have a very strong relationship and have worked hard on maintaining that, and I don't want to jeopardize that, though my feelings towards them, their relationship, and our history fluctuate. I have some stuff to work through and hope I'll be able to move past this again and feel, quote, normal around them. Thank you so much for for sharing that. I, I really appreciate it. Pardon me while I get a drink of water. This is an email I got from a listener who calls herself Ellie. And she writes, uh, Dear Paul, first of all, I'm going to be all mainstream and tell you how fucking awesome you are and how incredibly helpful your podcast has been to me over the past one and a half years. I think you're... I don't want to read all this shit. sounds like I'm pumping myself up. Um, uh, so I really don't want the following to sound accusatory or pretentious in any way. Having listened to every single episode, especially the last one with Jesse Dean Altman and the one with Guy Winch about grieving one's pet death... I felt compelled to write to you about this. Every time you talk about animals, it is clear that you care very deeply about them and can't bear the thought of them being hurt in any way, which to me and probably most listeners is very relatable. For that very reason, it always seems so paradoxical to me when you talk about having a hot dog, a steak, or a pint of ice cream. Um which is unquestionably the direct product of extreme animal suffering, animals that have the same degree of intelligence and emotional capacity as our beloved dogs, cats, and horses. Wow, now I probably sound like an uber-annoying veg-a-Nazi, and I know that technically this is not a topic covered by your podcast, but for me, opening my eyes to what is everywhere around us and connecting to my beliefs has helped me immensely in my mental well-being. I think the reason for that is that ignoring the violence that is involved in our food's production is the most prevalent, pervasive, and powerful example of cognitive dissonance that exists in our society. How are we supposed to uncover all of the mental distortions that keep us trapped in our own little hell if we're still supporting the torture of the innocent beings we'd usually have so much compassion for. I understand and respect if people have different opinions about this, but I just really felt compelled to share my perspective on this matter as you talk a lot about how our brains manage to justify and distort everything, which I've always found incredibly insightful. I could go on and on about how much I appreciate your work and the community you've created, but I've already strained my stone cold heart a lot today by showing you love. So bye. And uh, I'm grateful. It was not an easy email to read because I know um, it's true. It's true. And I uh, wrote her back and said, thank you for laying the truth out in such a kind, diplomatic, and self-effacing manner. And you are 100% right. I think about this disconnect uh, a lot. 
but probably not enough. Uh, but I find ways to justify my consumption to ease my conscience. And then I asked her some questions about where and how do you get your protein? Um, how about tasty meals? Uh, because so much of the vegan food I've eaten leaves me hungry and I can't think of a single dish I've ever eaten that I would look forward to eating again. And I can't eat soy uh, or peanuts and I'm trying to stay away from carbs because my fucking gut is going to need its own wheelbarrow pretty soon. And and I wrote and I said, I'm just so afraid I'm going to be hungry all the time or constantly in places where there's nothing for me to eat and I'll be lightheaded and depressed and death will seem like a great choice. I wish I was exaggerating. I wish I was exaggerating. But I thought, you know, maybe that's Maybe that's the universe cracking a little door open for me, and maybe now is the time for me to try to work towards it. And, you know, she said, I I emailed her back, and then she emailed me again and said, you know, don't look at it like it has to be an all-or-nothing thing. Just try baby set steps. That seems to be the theme through, through today's uh, episode. And so I ordered a vegan cookbook, and I want to look into maybe making a couple of uh, dishes from that and see how it goes. Uh, but thank you for that, Ellie. I appreciate it. And, you know, any of you that have, 99% of you that have ever written in with constructive criticism have done it in such a kind and diplomatic manner. I can't thank you enough because this is the opposite of what happens on Facebook and Twitter, which is people the thing I was talking about, we take the anger that should be directed someplace else and we pile it onto something that, yeah, we may be angry about, but not that angry about it. And um, I appreciate when somebody is diplomatic with something that is hard to listen to. Uh, this is an email that I got from, uh, Mrs. Cecile Nagayan and, uh, the subject is Dear Beloved and, uh, and then there's five exclamation points. I was, I didn't recognize her name, so I was going to just, uh, put it in the trash, but I saw the five exclamation points and, uh, and I saw Beloved and I thought, it sounds like she's fond of me. And uh, is very excited about being fond of me. Um, so it says, I am Mrs. Seal Nagayan from London, married to late Castillo, Castillo Nagayan with no child, currently diagnosed by colon and rectal cancer. According to my doctor, I have limited chance to live. I am looking for you. Now that's all one sentence. So I had to read this a couple of times. And here is my take on it. Okay. I am Mrs. Cecile Nagayan from London, married to late Castillo Nagayan with no child, currently diagnosed by colon and rectal cancer. According to my doctor, I have limited chance to live. I am looking for you. My take is what she is saying is she was married to a guy. He died. They don't have a child. She currently has colon and rectal cancer, according to her doctor. And she has limited chance to live because she is looking for me. That her energy spent in trying to find me 
is killing her. It, it is exacerbating the cancers that she has going on in her unspeakable regions. I don't know how this doctor knows me. I don't know how she knows me, but it seems they both, I've got to assume that they're both listeners. And I hope that the late Castillo Nagayan with no child was also a listener. Anyway, continuing. Uh, I have inherited funds and gold, and in parentheses, 50 kilos from my late husband, the sum of US 3.6M USD dollars. Those sound like they're double US dollars because it's US in front and US behind. So there's a chance that might be 7.2 million and then 50 kilos of gold. Um, I've always been awestruck by large chunks of gold. The weight of it, but more than anything, how easily I can manufacture rope-like necklaces that I can wear to high society parties. I wear, I don't know if you've ever seen pictures of me, but I wear, so people sometimes will sometimes ask me, it looks as if you are about to be hanged in Trump Towers because your gold necklaces are so thick. And I don't refer to them, all of my thick gold necklaces, as gold necklaces. I I call them my Texas spaghetti. And I wear a nice nest of, of Texas spaghetti, a nice plate of Texas spaghetti. This is why I want to read this to you guys, because I'm having trouble making a decision on whether or not this is worth the hassle of lugging 50 kilos of gold. Then, then she says this, I need a God-fearing person who can inherit and invest the funds and my gold from the security company and use it for the needy and build an orphanage home in my name. This is ironic because I have been raising funds to destroy orphanages. So clearly this is at odds with my mission. I have been going on a rampage of leveling every orphanage I see. It's exhausting. I'm thinking that I should shut down my GoFundMe campaign. That's called the name of the GoFundMe cam campaign is L I L comma Lil Homewreckers. I says maybe I'm so confused. I don't know what to do. And then I thought, maybe this is a phony email. And then it says, contact my attorney, Winstrom Morrison. And I thought, my God, that sounds pretty high class. I think this is on the up and up. So I'm going to give her my social security number and a couple of credit cards and um, start designing some necklaces. I actually want to get so many that it does like that that thing that they do in uh, some African tribes where it stretches your neck up because the last few times I've gone to the movie theater, tall people have been in front of me and and I've had enough. I think this might I think this might be the universe helping me. This is a portion of a shame and secrets survey that uh, was filled out by a woman who calls herself 
done but still dusting. Oh, I'm sorry. No, she is, uh, identifies as, I think, gender fluid. I don't have all the pages here. I could be wrong. I apologize about that. Uh, but she is more, yes, she uh, identifies as gender fluid. So actually, I should refer to her uh, as they. Um, they identify as gender fluid and they're Mormon, uh, raised conservatively. Um, they call themselves a mom. Um, so they're a parent. In their 20s, straight, and they were sexually violated by two male classmates uh, in grade school, and they had an abusive mom. Uh, when they went to her, and and there was also another person who who um, sexually violated uh, them. The mother did nothing. The m- mother pretended, just pretended that nobody was talking. Um, to the question, what are the sexual fantasies most powerful to you? Uh, they write, I do not go there. I do not watch pornography. I do not think about sexual fantasies. I don't feed that stuff. I think it is dark and evil. I have a very open and honest sexual relationship with my husband. As I'm writing this, I find it so ironic how, and then and caps, repelled I am to this type of thing. But yet, I am a fly to honey when it comes to self-hatred, self-harm, and suicidal thinking. It's like I somehow think it's okay to hate and despise myself, question mark, LOL. That's one of the things I love about when we start writing is that, man, it's so much gets revealed to us when we either start opening up and getting vulnerable, either through writing or sharing with someone. But I'm, I'm kind of intrigued by the idea uh, that they are uh, gender fluid, yet in a conservative Mormon community. Um, and I wonder if it's possible that that um, the wrong box was checked under uh, what gender they identify with. Anyway, that's not the point. I, I got off track. Um, to the question... Um, what, if anything, do you wish for? I wish I wasn't so broken and I didn't leave such huge messes, literally and figuratively, for people to clean up all the time. I wish I didn't drain the life out of my family. I wish so much I could be a good mom. I wish I felt better. I wish I cared more. I wish I didn't feel like I was moving in slow motion all the time. Uh, have you shared these things with others? Yes. I really don't have anything dark in my life, even though I'm having a hard time with my faith, especially when it seems my life is doomed for disaster. I still truly believe in the redeeming power of the atonement. I have repented and moved on from mistakes I have made. I come clean when I lie because I don't want that guilt burdening me any more than I'm already burdened. I feel that without my moral compass and without my strict aversion to certain things, I would definitely be dead or at least just totally and completely destroyed. How do you feel after writing these things down? I'm not sure. On one part, I'm just so sad that this is what I've come to, even after all the things I fought for. But here I am. I'm also so grateful that I have those things that have kept me safe enough, alive, just enough. And then this this, this one I found really um, moving, this, this next thing. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Um, they write, I don't even know. 
I have no advice. I don't even know what to say. I'm speechless. My breath is still caught from trauma that has happened to me in the last few years. I didn't know it was possible to hurt this much and for so long. And yet, my life is beautiful. And that's in caps. Come over and just look at it. I'm blessed. Blessed is in caps. My husband is crazy about me. My kids are beautiful. Our home is paid for. I have this beautiful view of tall trees and foliage behind my back porch. I'm surrounded by so many good and supportive and loving people. That's what makes it so tragic. Why am I hurting so much? I recently went on a little weekend trip, which turned into my third severe suicidal episode in two and a half years. I should have been hospitalized, but it just wasn't an option, so I found something in me to stay alive. It was like living off the crumbs on the floor. It was during this trip that we were on the north shore of the Canadigua Canadigua Lake, C-A-N-A-D-A-I-G-U-A. Canadigua. Uh, we were on the north shore of the Canadigua Lake. I even took a picture of this scene. It was beautiful, but in that moment, I wanted, and then it caps, more than anything, to scream and run headfirst into traffic. I wanted it the same way somebody dreams to become an actress or a famous singer. It was an aspiration. What am I saying? It still is. But in that moment, it was mingled with fury and anger and pain and unbearable frustration. That scene is my life picturesque with the inability to enjoy or even feel any of it. First, I want to tell you that you are not alone. And I have experienced the terror of being suicidal with a life that is great on paper. And I think it exacerbates it because it makes us feel even more broken. Like, it doesn't matter how good our lives are going to get. We won't be able to feel it or appreciate it. And I'm not a therapist, so I can't address what is happening with you. But I can tell you from my experience, I had to go back into the trauma and process that. And as cheesy as it sounds, go back and grab that little kid that I was and parent that little kid and learn how to protect myself, how to stop being a people pleaser, how to discover what it is that I want, what I need, and not care as much about what other people think of me. Um, what you described happening in your child is horrifying. Horrifying. You had these terrible things happen to you and your mother did nothing which sent the message to you that the world is unsafe and you are on your own. That's going to stick with somebody. That's my two cents. It makes sense to me that you feel this way. Now, this is just a portion of your life that you shared with me, but I can tell you, you are not alone in feeling what you feel. I don't believe you're broken. I believe there's just more healing to do. And 
you know, like the topic we t- touched on earlier in the show, maybe put aside if you have any preconceived beliefs about what healing looks like. Um, try it. Um, I had to, to crack open that, all the lies I had told myself as a child so that I could survive. I had to undo those lies as an adult so I could feel the pain I buried. And I don't know if that will be the path for you, but I think it's worth investigating with a therapist who specializes in childhood trauma because, um, why wouldn't you have a lot of pain? buried down in there and all that stuff that you have in your life those are material things and that you know a nice couch doesn't wipe out a parent not caring you know no view in the world is is going to rub away a feeling of being a piece of shit that isn't safe thank you for sharing that I really uh, I was really touched by that This is a happy moment filled out by Laura, and uh, she writes, most of my life has, and and by the way, that last survey, I don't even remember if I was consistent in uh, my pronoun use. I'm not going to beat myself up for it um, because I'm, it's something I'm working on, and I think my uh, tendency to want to be perfect is not a healthy trait to have and instead of worrying about it I just tell myself um, you did the best you could and if somebody's feelings are hurt um, somebody's feelings are hurt but I tried and I think the reason I'm saying that is I was at a support group meeting the other night and um, there was a trans person there who I've always been very friendly with and they celebrated a sobriety birthday anniversary and I said happy birthday and I said their name and it was uh, a gender neutral name but not um, the name that they are currently using and um, I I think it was a name that this person was using when they were a different gender um, or expressing themselves as a different gender and they snapped at me but I was wishing them happy birthday and I realized in that moment that wasn't about me. That was probably about their frustration with society and what a difficult life it is for a person to be different than mainstream in in our culture. But um, I also hate being criticized or thinking that I hurt somebody's feelings. So I don't know if any of that was worth... Uh, uh, explaining but if you didn't like it and you're still go fucking yourself from the first go fuck yourself earlier in the podcast string the two together into a nice marathon of fucking yourself this is a happy moment filled out <laughs> just that one. that's how long my my spiel was oh my god no no i didn't read this one i started to read this one um 
Yeah, I read her name and then I got off on my tangent. So this is a happy moment by Laura. She writes, most of my life has been a struggle. I've probably been bipolar all my life. It has made the bad things that have happened even worse. When after nine years of being diagnosed bipolar and still struggling, a doctor decided to test my lithium level. It was very low and was put, and I was put on lithium. Finally, I felt more stable and happier. It was like a dark cloud lifted. At the same time, my thyroid was tested and was low as well. Now that is better and I am almost back to my old goofy jokey self. I'm able to work on getting rid of negative thoughts that have plagued me for decades. I'm with a therapist too and that is really helping. I'm finally feeling happy for the first time in a long time. Love hearing that. I love I didn't even know lithium was something that we naturally had in our bodies. I thought it was just an awesome song by Nirvana. It turns out it's something we have in our brain. This is from the survey, uh, uh, sexual abuse or violation of young male by, uh, by older female. Uh, this is filled out by a guy who is straight in his fifties. Um, and he was raised in a totally chaotic environment and was a victim of sexual abuse and never, uh, reported it. He writes, hi, hello. I grew up in the near north suburbs of Chicago and come from a highly dysfunctional home with my parents and one brother. Uh, I was inspired to take this survey after hearing your own experiences with your mother and the effect it had on you growing up. Typing this, I realize my story is really too large, complex, and messed up for this survey, but I will try to describe it as quickly as I can. I was always my mother's favorite and was treated more as friend than her child. She sexualized me in subtle ways from my young teen years up to when I stopped allowing her to do so, which was only a few years ago. I am 55. My mother was a successful artist in Chicago, and some of her work used to involve her being submerged in water. These were taken with her naked in the bathtub. When I was in my early teens, I, of course, was the one she wanted to take these photos of my naked mother, being her favorite and confidant, and so I did. My father was a severe depressive and was like a ghost in the house, sitting, chain-smoking cigarettes. My mother is a gigantic narcissist requiring vast amounts of attention and so took many lovers. There are many, many instances of her describing her sexual activities to me when I was a teenager and beyond. Always a horrid experience, not only because she was cheating on my father, whom I felt sorry for, but because I had to hear the details of her sex life. I felt and feel she was showing off, telling me this stuff. On one occasion, I was around 12, I found pictures of a naked man she had been sleeping with, erection and all. On several occasions, she said there was something she felt about me that I, that I would be uncomfortable hearing. There was no doubt it was of a sexual nature. She never touched me inappropriately or made overt sexual advances towards me, but the overall daily effect of how she guided our relationship caused us to be unusually close for most of my adult life. This caused great conflict for me as I got older because it was at odds with my feelings of her being a very poor parent despite all the closeness. I finally did force distance between us, but only recently. Um... See. Yeah. 
And then there's some, some more stuff. Uh, he was also sexually abused by a grown man from the neighborhood uh, when he was 11 or 12. Uh, he writes, only recently did I begin to effectively unwind and understand how all of this fit together. Uh, and he also uh, describes uh, his father, who his mother said um, was probably gay. Uh, his father was also a, um, I think he said, a cross-dresser. Uh, if something happened, did you ever tell anyone? Uh, everyone I am close with knows about my sexual abuse. I'm not ashamed to discuss it because I know I did nothing wrong as far as my parents and home life are concerned. I only discuss that with my wife. Uh, everything sexual about my father made and continues to make me very uncomfortable. Oh, his father would make a lot of sexual innuendos, um, talk about penises, and um, yeah, he was basically sexualized by both of his his parents. Uh, I'm not sure I will ever completely sort out my emotions concerning my sexual abuse at the hands of the adult male. It's so difficult to understand the feelings of a 12-year-old living under conditions like those described as an adult 40 years later. Even when the child was me, I've always tended to view the situation through my adult perspective and thus ended up putting the guilt on myself. That is usually a great time, um, at least it was for me, to take out a picture of myself at that age when things were their worst and talk to that. Because when you see that innocent, childlike face, feelings come up that don't when you are looking at yourself like you're just a shorter adult. Um, I only recently realized how used I was, that it was not a relationship no matter how twisted. I was just used. The worst part was I told both my favorite teacher and my doctor and neither did anything to stop it, which I feel was the most damaging in the long term, for I've spent a life with a deep-seated, buried distrust of nearly everyone, especially strangers. My childhood was racked with daily generalized fear, and I still am a lot of the time. Uh, I slept in different parts of the house and stayed up all night in the summers, loving the end of the darkness, and would take walks before the world was awake, which gave me some peace. Um, when my father died, I was very sad, but have never missed him, and happy I don't have to live with the guilt of worrying about him. I resent both my parents for being so incredibly shitty. Uh, do you feel any damage was done? I have a serious anxiety, which can lead to depression. I am extremely distrustful of people I don't know and can often hate strangers for no reason, saddened that I never had a safe, stable environment growing up. It's frustrating sorting through everything, and although it's gotten a lot better, I feel much of the effects of my childhood are now almost part of physiology. They were formed so young and over such a long period of time. Um, and then he apologizes about uh, writing too much, and you have nothing to apologize about. Um, I was really moved and very much related to a lot of what you wrote about. And um, I have some suggestions for uh, uh, a book, and uh, it's called Silently Seduced. Uh, for any of you who ever felt like you were an object uh, to your parents or felt like you were their spouse or their boyfriend or girlfriend or just like there were no boundaries or privacy, um, that's a really good book because a lot of... Um, Damage is done that isn't overt, and it's not about demonizing the sick parent who did it. It's about giving weight to what happened to us so that we can 
feel the pain that we've been trying to ignore our whole life, process it, and feel lighter and more at peace and live the life that I believe we're meant to live, walking around as our authentic selves and enjoying getting up in the morning and not dreading it. This is a happy moment filled out by an agender person who calls themselves Salad. And they write, every time I hear someone say in an episode, uh, one of the audio clips in the opening of the show, I feel like I found another item in a scavenger hunt. It gives me a small jolt of satisfaction every time I find another piece of the puzzle. That, that really made me smile. Thank you for that. And I do enjoy putting that montage, that audio montage together uh, every year. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Deep Excavation. And he is straight in his 30s. Uh, he was raised in a stable and safe environment, um, was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. Uh, he writes, when I was between three and five, I would go next door to the neighbors and they had some teenage daughters that would hold me and treat me really nicely. It felt really good. But I remember that they would feel my penis and take off my clothes as well as take off their clothes. They would rub their breasts in my face and they showed me how to lick them between their legs. Someone would keep a watch out and if they saw my mom or dad coming, they would alert the others and everyone would get dressed and dressed and act like nothing happened. I would get taken home and spanked on my butt because I was over there without permission. I would always end up going back, usually without permission because I liked the attention. I'm not sure why, but even though now I know it was abuse, I liked it at the time. I had completely forgotten about it until I was doing some therapy four or five years ago when it came back. My parents never found out until I told them now, years later. They defended their spanking of me, saying that they were trying to prevent that from happening, and it was the only way they knew how to stop me from going to the neighbors without permission. I see now how I have carried a deep shame about my sexuality, even though I've been married for 17 years and had a lot of sex. The reason I was in counseling was because of a porn addiction. I was able to break free of that, but still find myself fantasizing about older women and as I've been listening to the podcast, I realize that I have a lot of codependent traits. Um, you know, I, it's just an, an analogy just kind of popped into my head when I was reading the sentence you said. Um, I would always end up going back um, because I like the attention. I'm not sure why, but even though now I know it was abuse, I liked it at the time. And an analogy came into my head of eating cake that has a odorless, tasteless poison in it. Um, both things can be possible at the same time. Um, and your body and your your body and your soul, I believe, can experience two different things at the same time. Your body b can be having incredible pleasure and your soul can be screaming uh, or frozen or... Um, confused. Uh, he's also been emotionally abused. Uh, I feel like I'm a victim of emotional incest. I'm currently reading The Drama of the Gifted Child by Alice Miller. My mother said a couple of years ago that she realizes that because of her lack of a mother in her teenage years, she used us children to fill that need. 
she was always a sweet mother and took care of our physical needs, but when a couple of years ago I listened to the song uh, by J.J. Heller, What Love Really Means, I cried out loud because I realized that my mom had always just loved me for her idea of who she thought I was and really had no interest in who I really am. It was never sexual or even covertly sexual, as you described in your story for Risk, which is the way how I first heard about your show. Even though my mother realized the problem, she thinks that now she is better, but she has just transferred to our children, so we try not to be around my parents very much. I'm very much in a journey of trying to acknowledge my feelings and be real, and I've really appreciated your you're being a role model, Paul. That terrifies me. Anybody <laughs> thinking of me as a role model? But thank you for that. Um, any positive experiences with the people who abused you? The sexual abuse happened in another country. I know of no positive experiences. Contrary-wise, I love my mother very much, and I'm very torn about my need to stay away from her. Darkest thoughts. I would like to find an older woman that I could go have sex with once a month or so. Just someone who would treat me nice and not require anything in return except just me being me. Not much older, just four or five years. Darkest secrets. I did a lot of window peeping in my teens. One of the things I've done since I was married that I feel is my darkest secret is traded nude pictures of my wife with another guy for pictures of his. Uh, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I had mentioned older women, but part of that is I always imagine getting a blowjob from them as well as having sex, but the blowjob is the focus as I've never got one from my wife. It makes me feel a little aroused just thinking about it, but it also makes me feel shame. It makes me wonder what it would be like to have a woman who would like to give me oral sex and let me give her oral sex. Uh, what, if anything, would like to say to someone you haven't been able to? If you had any idea of the mental agony, shame, and confusion it has been for me for a good part of my life. Um, it has been to be me for a good part of my life. Uh, what, if anything, do you wish for? I wish for contentment and unconscious positive self-worth and to be able to make a difference in other people's lives, to be a true friend. Man, support group would be a great place, especially for one that deals with some of the stuff that you've been through. Uh, have you shared these things with others? I've shared most of them with my counselor back in 2013, 2014. He was the first person I had ever shared some of my deep secrets with that didn't punish me. I had been raised in a conservative Mennonite church, and every time I finally opened up a struggle to the one uh, to the one of the leaders asking for help they would tell me instead that i have to be expelled from the community and would announce it publicly uh, what i had done in order to shame me from doing it again in order to get back into the community i would be required to come up with a repentance experience which i would have to share with them for them to judge whether i had repented or not I, being raised in that setting, just went with it because I thought that's just how things had to be done. I'm an evil person and I deserve to be punished, was what I thought. Once that had happened three times, uh, twice since I'm married, I knew that wasn't the answer. I sought professional counseling, which is against their rules, and found a man that honored me and helped me break free. 
My wife and I have since left that community since we saw how devastating it is after comparing it with the help we received from, quote, outside. Of course, because we left, they again excommunicated both of us this time. We are separated from our families and friends that we grew up with. They still act friendly for the most part, but are not allowed to shake our hands or eat with us. It's stupid. We've been invited over for a meal and then made to sit at a separate table so as not to eat together. We just started refusing to do that, so now we are in our new life and only hang out with our new friends. Thank you for sharing that. And I think we all remember Jesus saying that um, certain people should sit at certain tables. Um, <sighs> how do you feel after writing these things down good I could go on for a while anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences yes I believe that there is a God and he is not the Mennonite church I believe that there is healing available and it's worth the time it takes I believe that my sexuality is a gift and don't let anyone try to shame you for what you do dude you fucking rock Thank you so much for that. Thank you so, so much. Um, this is from the What Has Helped You survey. And this is filled out by a non-binary uh, person who uh, is bisexual, identifies as bisexual. Uh, they're in their 20s, and they refer to themselves as uh, Dr. Grump. And they their issues are autism, gender dysphoria, body image issues, and an eating disorder. And what has helped you deal with them? About the autism, giving myself permission to be freely weird and engage in the behaviors that came naturally to me as a child, uh, but which I was taught made me disgusting, unusual, inappropriate. I love relaxing at home at the end of a day, pretending to be, quote, normal, and letting myself rock in place, speak in a monotone if I want to, and sit in the dark, reading while playing soothing soft music or relaxing sounds that give me the ASMR brain tingles. I love having a partner who is also a bit, quote, weird, and who never, ever finds anything wrong with me doing what makes me comfortable. He loves me and loves my weirdness. He even thinks it's adorable when I deal with frustration by ranting at the wall uh, about uh, their gender dysphoria. I attend a weekly support group for people who are gender queer. I have made so many good friends through this group and have come to feel affirmed in my identity, and I've learned lots of new coping mechanisms and self-advocacy tips along the way. Uh, about the eating disorder and body image. I never look at nutritional information. I rarely look at myself in the mirror except for basic grooming and hygiene purposes. Most importantly, I've come to accept myself and my gender identity and then allow myself to wear comfortable, affirming clothing that makes me feel cute and at ease in my body. When I'm wearing my fuzzy blue sweater with the bear print on it, I have no desire to restrict or excessively exercise. I am filled with self-love and at peace with my body. What have people said or done that has helped you? After bleaching my hair a really nauseous orange-blonde color during an autistic meltdown, I think that's what the color should be called, called autistic meltdown. How awesome would that be? Uh, I asked my boyfriend if he was still attracted to me. He said yes. I then asked him what it would take for him to not be attracted to me. He said, you'd have to murder a baby or something like that. Actually, then, I'd probably still think the baby had it coming. It made me laugh and helped me realize how secure our love really is. I am fine, 
as I am. Even my flaws, meltdowns, and blow-ups are okay and part of what makes me, me. That is just fucking high-five, man. That, that just... That, that, ga- that gave me warm fuzzies. Ah, oh, for Christ's sake, you're getting all sweet? You guys, I'm sorry. I thought I had locked 1940s therapist out of the room, but apparently he found he found his way in. Listen, buddy, I think you're getting a little smart for your britches. Why are you here? I just think uh, you're making this all very complicated. You know, if a fellow's depressed, you know what he needs? He needs a nice gal to make him a good dry steak in a pan. A fella can't get any work done if there ain't coal in his choo-choo. Are you done? Yeah, I think I am. All right, thank you, 1940s therapist. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to start putting vegan coal in my choo-choo. I don't even want to know what he's going to say about that. This is an awful moment filled out by random, uh, by wayfaring Taurus. And uh, uh, he writes, uh, random call. Oh, uh, this is a routine incident in the downtown area uh, of a metropolis I work in. Random call over the radio at work. Homeless person tried to stab me. Dropped coffee in the process. Dispatch housekeeping. <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, and then finally, this is an awful moment that really moved me. Um, this, this moment to me is like life in a paragraph. Um, it's filled out by a woman who calls herself Honorable Mention Winner, and she writes, I lost my brother to an overdose several years ago. He was a diagnosed schizophrenic and had battled addiction Uh, For many years prior to his death, he would vacillate between doing well in therapy and taking medication to living on the streets, stealing and abusing drugs, uh, and stealing and abusing drugs. At the time of his death, he had been clean for his longest stretch, and so losing him came as a great shock to me. In the days following his death, I was given the task of cleaning out his apartment and collecting his things. In all of my grief and sadness, as I was packing his belongings and remembering how much I loved him... I discovered several large Ziploc bags with my name and other family members' names written on them. Inside each one was all the shit he had stolen from me and others over the years. As I sit there holding my own stuff, I began laughing. I laughed at how screwed up it is to steal from the one person who would have given you anything. In a weird way, I actually felt closer to him. And to this day, I keep the shit in the same Ziploc bag. That would be a fantastic ad for Ziploc, wouldn't it? Well, I hope you guys uh, got something out of this episode. And um, if you're a new listener, welcome. Um, If you're an old uh, listener, thank you. And if you're a had-it-up-to-here listener... Uh, good day, sir. I bid you adieu. That's not true. 
I don't want anybody to leave. I gotta, I gotta abandon my issues. But uh, thanks to uh, Jordan uh, for being such a such a great guest. Thank you guys for all the surveys and um, emails and and monthly donors and everything. Um, and if you're out there and you're you're feeling uh, stuck, uh, you're not alone. You're not alone. That's a lie that your brain is telling you. And um, there is help and there's hope, but it's not always easy to get. And a lot of times it takes a concerted effort, which is the very thing when we're at our lowest that is so overwhelming to think about. But um, it can change your life and it, and it, and it changed my, my life. And I'm so glad I'm here to, to be able to share uh, and talk way too much about myself. You got that right. Go fuck yourself. Uh, Thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.